Welcome to episode 313 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. We're back at it again. You can't really call it a comeback because we just keep coming back all the time. We never stop. And we're really undefeated in this great conversation we're having about theology. But we spoke last time about the roots and about good works and what is the root of that work. And in keeping with, of course, the biblical metaphor and our understanding of plants, we got to go out from the root now to talk about good works and fruit. So we got the roots. We got the fruits. What's the third thing we can throw in there that rhymes? I don't know. A toot? That's what happens after you eat the fruit. I'm getting ready for when I, when my son becomes a toddler and, and I can make silly toot jokes. There you go. It's that's also coming for you and perhaps for all of us at some yes, point. It's true. It's a future true. episode. So roots and fruit and good works, all of that coming up in this episode. But of course, first, let's do a little affirming. Let's do some denying. Let's start with affirmations on this episode. What are you affirming with? So I'm very excited about this affirmation. Uh, it needs a little bit of setup, but Set it up. I'm affirming James White. So, I mean, I know all of our listeners just fell off their seat, but when you have a disagreement with someone, whether it's an online disagreement, whether it's an in-person disagreement, um, and you're trying to come to some sort of resolution, it's important, I think, to celebrate the times that you move towards that. Even if, even if it's not what everyone would want, even if you still are able to level some criticisms against what is said or what is written. A step in the right direction is a step in the right direction, and we should celebrate that. So um, I, I had a crazy, crazy week on Twitter, and I, I, I don't – I don't. that's one of those things like I never thought I would ever say in, in my life. I had a crazy week on Twitter. In the past week, I began encountering people who flat out applied the word manos in Matthew 24, 36, which is where – Jesus says that uh, no man knows the hour, not the angels in heaven, uh, no man, neither the son or nor the son, not, but the father only, right? That's an emphatic Greek negation, but the father only. And so they were using that phrase, but the father only, and reading it in a very, very um, wooden, ultra literalistic surface reading sense. Uh, And they were also saying now that the Holy Spirit doesn't have this knowledge. So I can acknowledge that there's some complexities that come across in the the hypostatic union and that we have to uh, explain carefully, not that Matthew is trying to teach about the hypostatic union. That's not what the passage is about, but we don't read Matthew 24, 36 as though Philippians two doesn't exist, right? We don't read any one part of the Bible as though the rest of the Bible doesn't exist. And that's reading the Bible together like that is simply what we call systematic theology is, is understanding what the whole of the scripture teaches and systematizing it and making sure it's all coherent and, and internally consistent. So whatever Matthew 24, 36 means, whatever Jesus meant when he said manas, Um, he couldn't have meant that the Holy Spirit lacked knowledge because the Holy Spirit is God. We don't have a hypostatic union in reference to the Spirit in order to somehow explain ignorance in this person. And so I became very concerned about it. And so we started talking about online. Um, You know, it it became a very quick kind of hot button subject. And to his credit, absolutely to his credit, credit where it is due, he published an article that very clearly explains that when he is talking about what's going on in that passage or in the parallels in Mark or in Luke, that what he is not saying is that Jesus in respect to his divinity has ignorance, or he's also not saying that the Holy Spirit, uh, which only has respect to divinity because there's nothing other than divinity in the Holy Spirit, neither of those persons at any point in time, even during the point when that text was being written or recorded, Neither of those people lacked knowledge of the, the day or the hour. So this is this is the exact quote. I want to read 
the whole thing. He says, there's no reference to the Holy Spirit, talking about Matthew 24, 36. There's no reference to the Holy Spirit, and bringing the Spirit into the text is invalid. Likewise, on a basic theological level, we must affirm in any context that the Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God, 1 Corinthians 2.10. And that, since the day and the hour is part of the divine decree from eternity past, Father, Son, and Spirit fully know that day and hour, always have, and always will. We confuse exegesis with theological formulation when we skip the one step just to get to the next. So while I would still um, raise concerns about the way that he is sort of articulating and advocating that we interpret a text uh, absent, at least as the first step. So as far as I can tell, trying to be really charitable, what he's saying is that when we come to a text, especially a difficult text, we have to interpret it almost in abstract from everything else, right? So he's saying we have to look at Matthew 24, 36, and we only work outward. We don't we don't systematize until we've done that first step. So his argument seems to be that when you read Matthew 24, 36, and it says the Father only, that we should start from the basic understanding that the Father only means, in a sort of flat sense, the Father only. And only after we've spent time explaining that text in that context, um, abstracted or separated from everything else, do we then start to apply theological categories? So that's that's the hermeneutical principle that he seems to be articulating. I don't know that he's ever fully articulated that principle in a, a direct sense, but that's what I'm try, I'm sort of picking up. But now what we have is an explicit statement that is saying, all right, now that you've done that, you have to pull in, you have to understand the rest of the theological system and categories that the scripture is teaching. So I want to give credit where it's due. This is a huge step in the right direction towards a resolution to some of these controversies. I hope it's the first step of many to come where we're able to get these really clear, straightforward, systematic statements that articulate his position, not necessarily in sort of the, I don't know, piecemeal fashion that you get on the dividing line. That's one of the difficulties with trying to look at what he says is he'll start a topic and then he sort of like side branches to something else that's related, but maybe not. And then sort of like a story about his granddaughter and how many miles he biked last week. And then he comes back to it. So it's hard to really follow the line of argumentation sometimes. So this is a very direct, clear statement. So I want to celebrate that. I want to affirm this statement. I think it was very clear. I think it was timely. I think there were people who were um, either full blown over the edge of embracing heresy um, and I, I think it was in part because of some statements that he has made recently on the show. Uh, and now they can't do that. At least they can't they can't point to him as a source or authority of someone who holds that view. So I think it's good. I want to celebrate it. I will affirm that all day long and twice on the Lord's Day. <laughs> yeah, that's great. I think there's something to be said even just with this kind of conversation not devolving. So there's something to be said there even with just being charitable and how we approach that conversation, but also that it is in some ways it's a very intramural discussion. It's also a very technical discussion right? and probably beyond most people and maybe even beyond the usefulness of many people, but it doesn't remove the fact that especially for those who are going to have, to have some kind of medium or channel or just pulpit to speak these things, not the pulpit on the Lord's day, but just generally speaking an influence in the world that to have those conversations well, is an important thing. So in some of this, I see just a willingness to have conversations because if you put yourself out onto the internet as we do, you in some ways invite all kinds of feedback. And I think there is some kind of necessary responsibility to have some interaction and to not parse yourself off or separate yourself because you feel like you have some kind of outsized influence. And it's nice to see that uh, Dr. White is willing to provide some feedback and maybe answer some questions. I think that is a very lovely thing. Yep. So if you're looking for it, if you go to the uh, Alpha and Omega Omega blog, which is aomin.org, the title of the article is called Just Too Long for a Twitter Thread! Exclamation point. So it's definitely a James White article. It's definitely got his characteristic, uh, I don't know, spiciness. I don't know what you want to call it. But I would encourage you, go read it. Um, Like I said, this is a huge step in the right direction. It's a much clearer theological statement than I think we've gotten on a lot of his recent dividing lines. Um, And I think we should celebrate celebrate the unity of the Holy Spirit in this one. And we, we now have at least a starting point in discussions of these issues where all sides can say, yes, I heartily agree with that statement. There never was a time 
where the Father, Son, and the Spirit did not possess full knowledge of all things, including right. the timing of the eschaton. We can, if, if that's the starting point, it's kind of a weird starting point for us to try to build a bridge back to each other in some of these theology proper debates. But if that's the starting point, then I think that is a, it's a thing for us to celebrate. Yeah, absolutely. And it's also, it, like you said, it is kind of like a funny starting point, but it's born out of this right. whole kind of yep. conversation that in some ways has been just blown out because of a lack of clarity in somebody being able to express exactly yep. what it means that they're saying, or at least to wrap some really strong, more precise definitional language yep. around what other people think they think they're yeah. saying. Yep. So this is altogether beneficial. I love the title of that article, by the way, <laughs> in my opinion, that is 99% of theology. We should it's all true. just say this thing is way, d- d- just a man's needs longer attention, yeah. more intentional focus than uh, even like a whole Twitter thread. So that probably is just a good affirmation there. That's just like good behavior. So, yeah. and, and with that said, I'm going to switch it up. We're going to alternate a little bit. I'm going to go along with the denial because it kind of complements your affirmation. Oh, and this is something I've been thinking about this week. And part of that was because this is not my words and my Genesis, but a really great article that was actually posted to a blog and was entitled, what does it mean to be winsomely reformed? And it's by Michael Kruger. And I would it just, the easiest way to find it is just to search that title. What does it mean to be winsomely reformed? And I am denying against those who would say to be winsomely reformed is to be weak. Yeah. And I think there's a lot you and I have covered in the course of all of our conversations in this lovely back catalog that we have now of the fact that from the, its very beginning, this idea of the stream of kind of separate thinking that is quote unquote reformed has always carried along with it this sense of grace, gratitude, humility, and meekness, which we get presumably from Paul and his exhortation, especially to like the Colossians in chapter three. And so I see some of that happening here. Like in your affirmation, there is this sense that we can come together as a family, united in the spirit, have good conversation, even when we disagree about things, maybe in a profound way where there is some heat to that disagreement that at the end in the final analysis, there should be light that is generated from that conversation. And that light in part comes from understanding that we are beloved by God and part of this family with the head of Jesus Christ under most circumstances. And that because of that, that shapes or imputes the entire context and color of everything that we disagree about or the way rather in which we disagree about something. So I would encourage everybody to go check this out. And again, I just come hard with this denying against the fact that to follow along in the example of the Apostle Paul, who was, I think, bombastic in his own right, and yet he's writing, he's saying, you know, be lovely to one another, have compassionate hearts, seek kindness and humility and patience, bearing with one another in love. I guess, as we've said before, that should be like the primary thing we think about when we go to interact with somebody, especially online where there's that benevolent distance where we can sometimes not be ourselves or we can hide behind the fact that there is at least partial anonymity in that we don't actually have to confront this person in a kind of direct way that we should say, am I following the example that's been given to me, even in matters of theology? So everybody should check this out. And again, I'm just denying against the fact that if you're, if that's how you approach things, even again, hard theological matters, if you come in this direction, you come with this kind of weight behind you that somehow, some way you're being weak, or it's not okay to be winsome in your approach to having intramural discussions with loved ones in the family of Christ, that that somehow displays a weakness rather than a strength. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's great. I mean, I think there is this impression online uh, especially online. I don't, I think, let me just put it this way. When you're in a conversation and the other person like could punch you in the face, you automatically are a little bit more restrained. Like you're just, right. there's just a natural, um, I don't know, balancing force to the way that you interact with someone where if you t- step too off too far out of line, like they might just punch you. Not that they would, not that that's a realistic thing, but like it's possible. Um, yeah, we can we can sort of give someone a slug across the jaw across Twitter, but at the end of the day, like I can just log off my computer and who really cares? Um, that said, you can still be strong and forceful and make a make right. a compelling argument. Uh, and even I think sometimes you can even have a a sharp edge to your words. Um, even even sometimes some sarcasm. Like there's a time and a place and a usefulness to a little bit of sarcasm and a little bit of a witty rapport. Um, but that doesn't mean we have a right to be jerks. And I think, you know, I, I'm, I'm 
I'll be the first person to say that I'm not always successful at this. Like there's a reason why I, I frequently have to take long breaks from social media because it's a weak spot of mine. So I, I sometimes have to step back and go, this isn't healthy for me right now. I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm not living up to the standards I've set for myself. Um, but yeah, I think, I think it's really important for particularly reformed Christians who want to um, point all of the, all of the glory for anything good that we've done towards Christ Right. Salvation, we're going to talk about it today, our, our good works themselves are, are empowered by and caused by the Holy Spirit. We have to be willing to step back from our bad works of being a jerk and sometimes just let that go. And I think that that's a really hard thing. And it's hard. It's very hard because sometimes just by being, this is going to sound super arrogant and I'm not meaning it to be, I'm not even necessarily talking about myself. Sometimes just by being right and being confident in your, your correct statement of things, you come across as arrogant and as a jerk. Um, and you have to be able to sort of like step away from that and realize sometimes it's the way you say things. Sometimes you're just going to be perceived that way and you just have to live with that. But I think we should all strive. I mean, Paul says it as far as it, as far as it concerns me, I strive to be at peace with all people. Like that's, that's what being winsomely reformed means. It doesn't mean you're going to be able to be at peace with all people. Sometimes you're going to have to fight, but as far as that concerns you, as far as it is on your side, do everything you can to preserve peace between you and your fellow man. Um, I think it's a good corrective for all of us. And that's the, I think the operative way to focus on it is, can we say with good conscience that in so much as it does depend on us, we are at peace with people. That's the way you approach it or do it points in arguments. Do we forsake peace? Right. It's because we want to make a point or we want to have that hard edge. The question of what does it mean to to be sarcastic, to have good, you know, witty repartee in light of being winsome. Right. What does that look like? And it's cliche, but I think we are called to shine the brightest rather than shout the loudest. And yeah. this in part goes back to the thing I said before, which is that's why I think most of this like good, like hearty, robust, like if your dialogue is is like a rich lentil soup, you know, if that's like the thing that you're, you're having a conversation that's like, it's that meaty, just don't do it online. I mean, yeah. honestly, I think it's just, it's just better by way of creating the proper ground and context, which you have that conversation to move it out of that sphere yeah. of social media. Because like you said, there's a greater and different kind of accountability. I think a, a greater and different kind of compassion when you're seeing somebody face to face or talking with them on the phone, it's just totally different. And nowadays there's almost no excuse not to stop something. From happening and say, let's move this to another location. Yeah. That doesn't mean that the person might agree to do that. But again, in so much as it depends on us, that again is like the operative phrase within that. Yeah. So it just reminded me of your interaction with Dr. White this week. And again, at any given point in time, there are people shouting at each other among open-handed and closed-handed issues. And so this seems like a perennial thing. I'm sure that we will come back to time and time again, but enough of um, me being negative. Do you want to do you have a do you have a denial or like anything against coming? I don't. Coming? I, you know, it's such a good week. Uh, I think I want to just keep it <laughs> positive, and I'm gonna keep what it on. Here? I'm gonna keep it on my Lord of the Rings kick that I've been having. So um, every once in a while, because I used to have an Audible subscription way back in the day, every once in a while, probably about once a year, I get an email from them that's like, "Please come back. Here's two credits." And so I sign up and I cancel right away, and it doesn't cost me anything. And this time I signed up and I got a uh, I got the copies of the the most recent audiobook version of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, nice. uh, which is read by Andy Serkis, who, of course, uh, was the, nice. the motion capture and voice actor for Gollum in the Lord of the Rings movies. I think he was Gollum in the Hobbit movie as well, but I don't know that for sure. Um, he's done a ton of voice acting, a ton of motion capture stuff. He's one of those actors who has a super, super versatile vocal skill. And honestly, at times during this vocal, it's an unabridged version. So it's not a dramatization of the books, um, but he voice acts the character so well that it is difficult at times to realize and remember that they are not, he's not multiple actors voice acting this. Wow. Um, they are excellent. And I really enjoyed the Lord of the Rings films by Peter Jackson. Um, I've never read the Lord of the Rings trilogy all the way through. I just struggle with some of the way that the language is and, you know, Tolkien will take like four pages to describe a meadow and like, like the elves will sing a song to Elbereth for like four and a half pages. And I just struggle with that kind of writing. 
Um, but Circus and, and this this format is so so good. Um, he voice acts it acts it brilliantly. His intonation is brilliant. Even when he's talking as the narrator, he has kind. Of, I think he's South African. I, I might be wrong about that, but he's got kind of a a different kind of accent. It's not like just your standard like British literature accent that most you know most um, audiobooks use. It's a very distinct kind of accent. So even when he's just the narrator, it's it's very different. Um, so yeah, check it out. Um, you can do an. I mean, we don't have an Audible link. Actually, I think we probably do, and I don't even I think remember we do. what it is. We do somewhere. If you want to guess at it. You can actually little known secret when you want to sign up for an audible trial, you can do audible.com slash literally anything you want and the trial will work. It just gives somebody credit if it's an actual switch. Um, so try, I guess, try audible.com slash form brotherhood. See if it works. If I, I get an email thing. saying we got a, a, a bounty on it, whatever they call it, then that'll be fun. A um, bounty. <laughs> they call it a bounty. It's not a commission. It's a bounty. Anyway, I love that. Check it I out. I love that. It's super good. Each book is like 23 and a half hours long. Um, but I think they're worth it. I mean, it's it's a it's brilliant literature. There's something about the way he reads it. He sings all of the songs. So I'm sure somebody had to compose um, tunes to all the songs, but he sings all of the songs. And singing in song is a major component of Tolkien's work that you miss if you watch the movies, for the most part, if you miss watch the movies. Um, but I really can't say enough good things about it. I'm really, really enjoying it. If you think about it, the elves in Tolkien's word are, are a lot like Methodists. I mean, there's so, the, just so many verses, <laughs> so many yeah. verses. Yeah. I so, mean, Bilbo sings Days of Elijah for like seven years at one point <laughs> in the story. <laughs> this is what I hope that people can appreciate about our conversations. You just never know where it's going to go. We, we went from Tolkien to elves, to Methodists, to Robin Mark. Yeah. And we're going to go all the like, way back again. These are the days of Fin of Finrod. Felagorn. Yeah, that's pretty good. Actually, I'm going to write that of power. It wasn't Finrod who did that, but no, it's not, but I'm going to steal that. Cause that's uh, pretty good. This is one of that... our hallmark reform brotherhood challenges. If you are both a Lord of the Rings fan, I think I might just be talking to Conrad actually, but I would love for someone to write a, a copy of the song days of Elijah, except it should be a, a dramatic retelling of the Lord of the Rings. So be like, these are the days of Aragorn, Elisar, something or other. <laughs> we can do it. Yes. We can do it. There's a lot of room there to run. That's there fantastic. Is. Yeah, of course, Lord of the Rings are fantastic. So I, I wonder if people uh, haven't read that yet, or I think maybe having the Audible would be like a nice foray, a nice entry point into the yeah. story, because it can seem intimidating with all these books. And I get it. It's written in a style that's overtly literary does that yeah. make sense like yeah. it's that's kind of how it is that's and it's also unapologetically the vibe so right. i get it i get it so i think that that's a, a really super strong recommendation not just that but also that uh you should go to audible.com black slash reform brotherhood and see if that's actually a thing <laughs> i don't think it is i don't think we have an actual <laughs> switch like that i think it's like reformbrotherhood.com slash a c f e q hashtag yes i don't know I think Probably it is. There's an underscore in there somewhere. Yeah. And yeah. yeah. So keeping on this theme, so we got a little bit of great reading or audio for you. Let me compliment that with a little bit of music. There is a band that I've recommended on here before, and they're just serial worshipers. Like I think one of my favorites in terms of everything they put out, both the music is brilliant. And I'd say even more importantly, the lyrics are so rich with theology and they're just on point and it just draws you into a kind of doxology that is catchy. I mean, this is the best kind of doxology, catchy and theologically significant. And so I'm affirming with citizens, they've often been called citizens and saints. I think they just shortened it to citizens some time ago, but they did release an, a relatively new album in July called A Thousand Shores. It's five songs and it is glorious. It's all the things that you want from them. And yet they're always so creative. So here's what I'd recommend that you do. It's not just that this is a good album. That's true. It's not just that it's good music. That's of course true. It's not just that it's good theology. That is definitely true. It's also that it's really, really well mixed. So do this. Go to whatever favorite streaming app that you have or use. You go to Spotify, Amazon, Apple Music, all that stuff. Go look up A Thousand Shores by Citizens. Then get your favorite pair of headphones or inner ears. You need these because this album is so well mixed with so many unique parts. It's just so beautiful. 
that you're going to want to listen to it in a focused kind of way. Go search the lyrics so that you can be looking at them as well. And I guarantee you're going to have uh, a time of worship. So I'm affirming with A Thousand Shores by Citizens. It's their new album that was released in July. Nice. A nice. Check it out. Yeah, it's it's great. And there's no screaming. Nice. Literally zero yelling on this album. There's also zero screaming when Andy Serkis <laughs> sings a hymn to Elberath in on the old West Road or whatever it's called. That's good to know. I I feel like there could be some screaming in some of those songs. Don't you there think? Should be. I, mean, there's a, I feel there's like, like lamenting. There's drama. Yeah. Actually, here's another challenge. We should take that music and remix it hardcore. I actually think it would play really well. Yeah, like a really metal, well. like a metal version of the Misty Mountain song from. The yes. Hobbit. Yes, in the style of Swedish death metal. Yeah. Yeah. Let's do it. Well, not let's, like when I say let's, I mean, someone else do it. <laughs> I certainly am not going to do it. No. And even as you said that your excitement was palpable, I think we all felt how thrilled you were to have that like, done and then so, to listen to someone, someone else do it. <laughs> I feel like if there's death metal in, in AI or middle earth or whatever you want to call it, uh, I feel like it probably is, is out of Mordor and it's probably in the black tongue. So that's probably why you don't get a lot of representation in the books. Yeah. yeah. I, I get that. There could be, but I want to change death metal into death and resurrection metal and make yeah. it like, you know, both that uh, hard edge in that it's, it's law gospel, right? Yeah. Law that, gospel that's, metal. There that's it. Go. See it. New genres all the time. So speaking of law and gospel, that's like as good a segue as we were going to get because <laughs> Rob and Mark already came up. We talked about Methodists. We talked about uh, Lord of the Rings. So, you know, we're on this journey where we're talking, we're kind of moved into like a more practical bent. At least we're tilt at this point toward like the more practicality of the theology, which had been expounding for quite some time. And so we spoke again about the root last week and about good works. And now we're really talking about the fruit of these good works. And I do think maybe it's unfair to say they're two sides of the same coin. They're certainly more intertwined than that, but yeah. there is in some ways, I would say a clear line of distinction between trying to understand these things categorically. And I think a good place to start as we often do is to think about what the Westminster confession of faith insists about Christians. And that is it's unequivocal, especially the 18th chapter that we can be certainly assured that Christians are in a state of grace. And then it goes on from that point to say that it's an infallible assurance of faith and it is founded upon at least three considerations. This is all from chapter 18, which you can go look at in your vast leisure. And that is one, that there's a divine truth of the promises of salvation. Then there's an inward evidence of those graces into which these promises are made. In fact, the chapter says we are in a state of grace. I love that terminology, this idea of being in a state, in a physical known reality of great quantity, that it is qualitative and quantitative, it is a state. And then lastly, the testimony of the spirit of adoption witnessing within our hearts that we are children of God. And of course, all those things lead us then to this idea of it's certain, it's infallible. There must be some outworking. There's got to be something on the branch that brings all of these things together. And of course, that leads us to this conversation of good works and fruit. Yeah. So I think one of the things that um, commonly happens with newer Reformed Christians is they either come into Reformed theology and they sort of fall in love with this concept of God's free, conspicuous, um, you know, gratuitous grace that right. is so amazing and is is everything. And all of that's true. Like God's grace is is our only hope. It's everything to the Christian. But there is more to what God says in his word than just just I'm going to save you graciously. And I know that sometimes that feels really wrong to say. But justification is not the only thing that the Bible talks about and justification is not the extent of our salvation. It's not the whole thing. The flip side is that sometimes Reformed Christians come into the Reformed faith and they they recognize that Reformed theology and the Reformed tradition has a, has a uh, history of pushing for and recognizing the vital importance of holiness and an outworking of that holiness in the form of outward manifest good works. And so sometimes Christians come in and they sort of fall off on this sort of antinomian ditch where it's all grace and the law is is maybe maybe the law has some nice things to say for us and maybe it's a helpful guide but it it doesn't do anything for us anymore 
or they fall onto the other side. And so grace is kind of like that thing that happened to us in the past. And now we've got this good works thing to worry about. And it's sort of a legalistic branch in reality. It's all part of the same process that God is bringing us through, right? There, there's regeneration, which is all God's work. There's justification, which comes about when God builds faith in us. That's all God's work. It's sanctification, which has a, a definitional element where God definitively at a moment in time sets us apart and sanctifies us. He, he renews the whole man after the image of God, right? In part, but the whole man partially. And then there's what flows out of that is the Christian life, which we would sort of think about as like progressive ongoing sanctification, where he empowers us more and more to uh, mortify sin, to, to live to the spirit, to live unto righteousness. And then, of course, this culminates in, in the last day in glorification, resurrection. All of those things are God's work through and through. So, so everywhere across the board, that's God's working in us justification is by grace alone through faith alone sanctification especially in this positional definitional aspect that we're talking about that's by grace alone through faith alone everything is by grace alone through faith alone right but that does not mean that good works are not a necessary component of the christian life they are not a contingent component of our salvation they don't bring about or cause our salvation but absent good works we have no confidence and no reason to believe salvation has occurred. Right. Don't hear me carefully when I say that I am not saying, and, and I actually have a really strong concern with theologies that say we look to our good works for assurance of salvation. Right. And I know that's not, that's not what Jesse is saying when he talks about inward evidences or outward evidences. Right? The Westminster confession talks about good works as the evidence of salvation. Right. That is not what it's talking. It's not what it's meaning when it's saying um, that those outward works, that outward fruit of salvation is assurance of salvation. It's right. an evidence that contributes to our knowledge and our confidence that we are saved. But assurance of salvation, properly speaking, is that inward testimony of the Holy Spirit that causes us to trust and rely on the promise of Jesus Christ. That's what assures us our salvation is that Christ has promised to save us. The spirit has taught us and told us that we are indeed his. That's the assurance of salvation. But that the fruit that we bear is an important evidence for us to help move us towards confidence in Christ. But we have to remember good works are not some optional add on to the Christian life. Um, this is kind of like uh, almost like um, what is it? Keswick theology, right? like crisis theology where there's this, there's this initial justification and like, that's like, that's like the tier one Christian life. But then like, if you really want to be a great Christian, like that's when you start to push into holiness and righteousness and good works. That is not the Christian. That's not the reformed traditions position on this. That's not what we would argue or teach that the Christian life is. The Christian life is a life striving for good works and holiness lived out of a position of being God's children. That's the key to all of this. And so just as we would say that the fruit is not the tree or the root, a, a tree that is supposed to bear fruit, that never bears fruit, there's something wrong with that picture. That, that tree is not, probably not healthy, and it's certainly not living up to its intended purpose. If, if you have an apple tree that all it ever does is like grow leaves and never bears apples, then it's not, at the very least, it's not fulfilling its intended purpose. At the very most, it represents some sort of deep fundamental flaw or sickness with that tree that it's unable to bear fruit, which is the whole purpose of the tree. Right. Another way to say all that might be to say something like, we're talking about not faith in evidence, but faith in Christ. And there sometimes is this argument for, well, do more, try harder, look deeper, see, get somebody around you and see if they can identify this fruit. There is in some ways, we were talking about objective truth, but like a subjective trying to discern whether that objective truth exists. And that can get really faulty and really shakily really quick. A la, I don't know why you're clapping. I'm talking about you. So like <laughs> yeah. this idea, like the counsel to like do more it is in a sense, the belief that works provide the ground for assurance rather than the evidence of assurance. That's like a path to legalism and it's legalism really in its proper sense. And a lot of this I draw from in my own experience, I've been really ministered to by Sinclair Ferguson's 
uh, book, The Whole Christ, which I'm guessing he wrote in like 20 minutes because he just writes so <laughs> many books so vastly. And he kind of invokes what he calls like a gospel logic and this idea that there is no assurance of faith that can be experienced apart from that faith. That's like the essential element. And yet right. we should also at the same time be looking as really what we're seeing represented in the divines that out of this abundance of assurance in Christ himself in the saving work that he's done, that we somehow can see that that is in fact true. All of this is a great gift to us. I think we talk right. about this sometimes as if like we're under the thumb of this whole thing. We got to figure it out because it's really complex and everybody's just divided. Nobody's we're coming to like the greater or the lesser of two evils and how we try to like articulate this whole thing. That's just not true because the possibility of certain infallible assurance is really set against, of course, the backdrop of what the medieval church and the post-reformation Catholic church views the understanding of assurance as at best, like conjectural, like in other words, think about what the opposite of what we're saying is like, it's not better. It's much, much worse. And in yeah. fact, it's this idea that at best, all you can do is come to this kind of sacramental treadmill and do a lot of stuff to make sure that you're showing that you are actually assured rather than the other way around that the works, the change, the change in stature and state of grace are in some ways evoking something from within you. That is the Holy spirit crying out even to the father and is changing both who you are and what you do and how you think. And so that is a great source of freedom. I think to lean into that and to trust that even all these good works we talked about in the root come from God himself. And so we bear those out by way of leaning into that more deeply. Now, of course, as you already said, that can run this like strange ramp that just like falls off a cliff, yeah. which is this idea of like JV and varsity Christians or crisis point theology or you know, some kind of sense of like, well, I am a Christian but I really became a Christian when I did X, you know, right. I, I've heard that multiple times. I've been tempted to say that myself, but it's this idea of like, well, I had an increased moment of surrender or this is like, these are false categories, loved ones. Yeah. It, they're just not necessary. Paul is not giving these to us because he wants us to have this firm assurance that when God comes and saves us through Christ by giving that sign sealed and delivered of the Holy Spirit, that there is at that moment a state of grace, which necessarily is manifest yeah. in some kind of change. And it may be hard for us to see that at times. Satan himself may cloud our judgment. We may be too hard on ourselves. These are all legitimate categories of how we think about this, but it doesn't remove the fact that God is doing this great work and that we have to see that great work manifest in some way. That's why I think, and I don't know how you feel about this, but that's why I think the Westminster Divines said that this, is, this assurance is founded upon that inward evidence because right. I think what they're trying to get at is like this practical syllogism. So, the first premise would be true believers demonstrate the fruit of the spirit. The secondary or the minor premise would be the fruit of the spirit is present in me. And so the conclusion is I'm a true believer. That's what they're after there. But if we get it twisted and start to like flip over the fact that, well, if I could just do enough good works or somehow promote my good works, that somehow that just gives me further assurance. Then we've confused like the object itself of that assurance. And we're yeah. not talking about faith and evidence. We're talking about faith in Christ. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, I think, um, to sort of like talk about this practically, I think that this um, misunderstanding of the role of good works and the role of the fruit as evidence, I think that there is sometimes an unintentional, there's like a seepage of works righteousness into our theology that we don't always You had recognize. me at seepage. Seepage, and so th this is one of the ways that it, it takes place, right? And I think I think we all know somebody who might fit this description. Um, you know, you talk to somebody you know who has kids that are adult children, and um, their their kids were raised in the church, whether they're Baptists or Presbyterians. Their kids were raised in the church. Um, they were either baptized as infants and as Presbyterians, or they were baptized as usually you know thirteen, fourteen year old kids as um, Baptists. And then that kid walks away from the faith, right? They, they, they probably don't ever explicitly reject the faith. They probably don't ever say like, that's false, but they, they stop going to church. They stop living life in any sense that demonstrates salvation or demonstrates good works. And what you hear is, well, they're not walking with the Lord right now, but there's this underlying assumption that happens. I think that they're still Christians and they always were Christians and they're always going to be Christians, but right now they're just not living like Christians. Right. And I, I want to challenge that assertion 
everybody backslides. Everybody has seasons where their their sanctification is not as evident as other seasons, right? Or they have times in their life where they just are are not they're not they're not striving for good works. They're not they're not living in that sense. That's not what I'm trying to say. I'm not trying to say like, oh yeah, if somebody somebody has a bad day, then we should consider them not to be a Christian for that time. But there comes a point where a person who bears no evidence of salvation, they bear no fruit in keeping with repentance, right? Jesus says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And then no one, all who all who bear bad fruit or none who bear who do not bear good fruit, the axe is laid at the root of the tree. Right. right? So so Jesus has very strong words to talk about, and he's talking about the Pharisees who have this outward, outward statement of righteousness, but the inner life and their their actual works do not bear that out. This sort of like idea that works and salvation are somehow not related to each other. I think it's sometimes it's like an overcorrection because we yes. don't ever want to say that works is the cause of our salvation or that our salvation is contingent upon works. That's that's not what we're saying. But there is a necessary relationship between salvation and fruit right? You can't have the root, which we talked about last week, which is salvation, right? The root of good works is the salvation, which is ours in Christ Jesus and the empowering of the Holy Spirit. That's where the good works come from. You can't have that root and then not have the fruit that that Holy Spirit guarantees he will produce. So if you don't have that fruit, then they have good reason to question whether there is any sort of root at all. And that's why I don't know if you've ever run into this. Somebody who says like, oh, yeah, I've got a I've got a fruit tree out in the backyard. Like they say, like, oh, yeah, I've got an apple tree out in the backyard. And you're like, oh, has it ever has it ever grown apples? And they're like, well, no, it doesn't grow apples. And you're like, well, how do you know that it's an apple tree? Oh, well, I know it's an apple tree. Maybe that just happens out here in New Hampshire because people have like (laughs) random trees in their backyard and they don't know what it is. But I think like when you look at a person's life and there is no fruit whatsoever, our our with understanding the concept of the judgment of charity, which we're not, I don't think we're going to get into specifically right now, but all of that aside, all of that understanding in place, there comes a point where we have to look at it. And our first instinct with someone who has absolutely no outward evidences that they're a Christian, um, we should not assume that they're a Christian simply because when they were young, they were part of the church or when they were young, they were baptized as an infant or whatever the, whatever the precipitating event that we look at is. We shouldn't necessarily just assume that that is a sufficient evidence when there's all sorts of contrary evidences or whatever. Um, and I think that's, there's this subtle disconnecting of the necessity of good works as the, when I say necessity, I'm talking about like technical, logical language. There's a necessary relationship between salvation and good works such that salvation will always, always yield good works. Now, sometimes those good works are very small and they're hard to see. Sometimes the only good work that is actually produced is the orthodox profession of faith that a person has. Right. And, and, exactly. and an inward, and this is where I think some of those evidences of inward graces comes in from the Westminster divines, the inward conviction of sin that they have, that they may not ever express outward. You certainly can't see it as a third party. Those are good works that we may not visibly be able to see, but ordinarily when the spirit changes somebody, I mean, this is what I've said before. When the spirit gives a person new life, that new life is going to do what life does and it lives and it grows. That's what life does and it reproduces and it replicates and it produces fruit. That's what life does. So if it's not doing that, then you have to question whether it's actually new life at all. Yeah. And to just like come alongside that, because that's right on, I think, is let me read just like a part of just the beginning of, of Romans 1. This is just the salutation. So it's, of course, Paul introducing his himself giving a, essentially his quick resume in terms of apostleship, but see if like you can hear within this exactly what you've just said, Tony, like this idea that it's inexplicably, inexplicably is not the word, like it's just, it's intertwined to such a great degree. The fact that to be changed is to bring a for, bring up a part of this fruit by the power of the Holy spirit. So hear this and how Paul writes. So this is uh, Romans one, just the first couple of verses, Paul, a servant of Christ, Jesus called to be an apostle set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. 
through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. So it's almost like, you know, if I write you an email, I'm going to write like Tony or dearest Tony. And <laughs> when I do that, I'm expressing, I'm encapsulating in some way, the best that my language can, all of the essence of your being, which is you are the one called Tony. That's who you are. And so even it's almost like a throwaway line here that Paul has for us because it's just in the preamble. It's just in the introduction. It's just saying to you to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all nations, including it's for you who are called to belong to Christ Jesus. So anybody who would say like, well, I haven't got the fruit yet, or I need more fruit, or there is like by nature, by the definition of one who has changed in a new creation, there is fruit that is like necessarily to your point, a part of that. Like, I wouldn't even say there's a minimum fruit. There is fruit of the spirit. There just is. And so like, we ought to look for that. We ought to try our best to cultivate that. I'm not saying to manufacture it, but to understand what it means to live in righteousness and to come alongside, to seek after piety. But the minute that we compromise, the intent is to compromise the fruit itself, because what we're after here is what God does in us and through us for his glory, uh, for all the nations, as Paul says, because you are called to belong. And if you are called, I think we, most reform people would say, well, I don't do the calling. Of course, that sounds crazy. God himself, the one who is drawing, does that call. And so if the one who's doing the calling is basically doing the saving, then so also is the fruit coming through that means. But it doesn't mean that we it's not going to be present. It right. just must be present. Everywhere yeah. you turn in the scripture, you're going to find that that's assumed. And so Paul assumes it here to such a degree that it's in literally the salutation to the people whom he's writing to. He's identifying them in the same way that you use somebody's name to say, this is the essence of who you are. And what Paul says is who you are, are saved people that bear fruit, bear fruit, bear fruit in obedience of faith. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that theme that you're identifying that, that the essence of what it is to be a Christian is to be one in whom the spirit of holiness dwells. And right. in whom the spirit of holiness produces holiness, which necessarily has outward effects of visible good works, right? That's that's the essence, in in a sense, of being a Christian. That's what it means, is to be a temple of the Holy Spirit and everything that comes with that. That theme carries on throughout the rest of the book of Romans, right? So Paul's answer when he's confronted with this person who goes, well, should we sin that grace abounds? His answer right. is not a long technical excursus on on the logical or illogical nature of that his answer is more or less that's an insane question that would be like asking should we have four angles so that circles may abound like that it just doesn't make any sense to have this conception of us of a christian who intentionally sins in order to bring about grace it's a it's an incoherent statement and so paul's answer instead is well if you if you died to Christ, then surely you must. If you died in Christ, then surely you must live with Him also, right? His answer is, well, are you alive or are you dead? Well, if you're alive, right. then you're going to do the things that an alive thing does. You're going right, to live. Exactly. You're going to grow. You're going to reproduce. You're going to produce fruit. And I I know sometimes I get feedback on on the show that that because we make we have a topic and we go a certain direction and we usually are pretty narrow focused on that direction. Sometimes you can get the impression that these are are issues that are just settled and easy to wrestle with. So I want to read something. I've been reading through this passage over the past couple of weeks, um, partially in preparation for this, but just also because it, I've been trying to spend more time in the Gospels. So this is a passage out of Matthew. It's um, chapter seven. So it's in the Sermon on the Mount. And I'm starting in verse 12. And I'm going to explain why I'm reading this when I'm done reading it. He says, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it, uh, enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing and are inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased fruit, diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree uh, cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. 
Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone who then hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. The rain fell, the floods came, and the wind blew and beat on the house, but it did not fall because it has been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house. And it fell and great was the fall of it. Now, the reason I read this large section, I kind of commented on this last week, that we sometimes, especially the Sermon on the Mount, because we we have good reason to believe this was not a single sermon that Jesus just like plopped down and gave, that this is sort of like an anthology of sermons. There's, there's pieces that Matthew and Luke and Mark, as they've recorded this in their various ways, have pulled and they've kind of crafted a sermon from various components of things that Jesus has said. What we tend to do is we read this almost like Proverbs, where we think about this and we go, well, okay, this little passage here, the ESV editors put a space between 14 and 15. So those things aren't related to each other. But the whole theme of this passage is about the complex understanding of the role of good works in the life of a believer, right? right? Some people find the narrow gate and the gate is, uh, and they, they, other people don't. That's right following on this whole idea that the entire law and the prophet is doing what to others what you would do to them. So are we to read that to say that fulfilling that law is how you find the narrow gate? Well, of course not. That's totally contrary to what the rest of the Bible says. But then the next one is you'll know the false prophets by their fruit. And if you don't bear good fruit, you're going in the fire. Well, what does that mean? How do we, how does this all play together? And then right again, the next thing we have people who think that they've done good works. They can point to good works, but the Lord says, I never knew you. And then now we have this kind of culmination final piece of this little section of the sermon that the foolish man is the one who hears the words of God. The law of God does not do it and great will be his fall. So I'm not going to propose a synthesis or an answer for this. I mean, this is a complex, difficult section of scripture because it does sort of feel like it goes back and forth between salvation is dependent on works in some sense. Salvation is totally not dependent on works. You can have works and not salvation. You can have salvation and not works. You can't have, you know, all of this kind of seems to go back and forth. This is a difficult, complex thing. And so we should, we should major in the majors of it. And what that means, what that means for us is that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, necessarily for good works, right? We should never disconnect good works from salvation, but we should never make good works the cause or dependent of salvation. Good works, salvation never depends on good works. Now, again, it doesn't mean that 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 isn't the evidence of good works or of, of salvation. And it doesn't mean that the absence of good works says nothing about salvation. It just means that good works are the product of salvation, and we have to keep that in its right place. Whether that means that we are extra cautious about using this like language of a, of a backslidden Christian who's not walking with the Lord, well, what is, what, is, what is that? Like, how coherent is it to talk about a Christian who's not walking with the Lord? Like that doesn't make any sense. Right. So I just think we have to be, we have to go into this with our eyes open, recognizing this is a difficult subject. The Bible is um, perspicuous, but sometimes we're a little bit, a little bit foggy. It's us that have the problem, not the scriptures when we don't understand it. But it also isn't to say that everything in scripture is easy to understand. I mean, Peter says, says sometimes Paul writes stuff that doesn't make right. a lot of sense to me. It's, it's complicated. It's difficult. So we have to be careful. We have to do the hard work. But we can always go back to Ephesians 2, saved by grace through faith, not right. not of works so that no one may boast, but nevertheless, four works that God has prepared in advance for us to walk in. That is the majoring in the majors that we need to focus on. And I think if we can keep that straight, then yeah, there's a lot of discussion to be had around what the specific interplay is. And, and there's all the dust up between Mark Jones and R.C. Scott Clark and John Piper, all of that stuff. Um, I don't mean to put Mark Jones and John Piper in the same camp because I actually think they're saying very different things. But um, all of that dances around this subject. But if we can major in that major premise, I guess, and land on that and retain that, 
then the other stuff that we say kind of dancing around the edges of that, it's not that it's unimportant, but it's not going to corrupt our gospel the way that something like Federal Vision or New Paul does if we can major on that major point. And I think part of majoring in that point is not just turning over the fact that there's a lot in here that is mysterious, but especially that we can entrust all of this to God, that the knowledge is far and above and beyond us. But so we trust in God to bring this about, which is to say, in another kind of use of language, that we're abiding in Christ. Yeah. And that if we focus more on the abiding, I think to some degree, all of this shakes out on its own, but yep. it's easy to get wrapped up in trying to understand what all this means and then to draw lines or boundaries around it to make sure that somehow we're again, achieving the thing that we think we ought to be achieving when really we ought to be resting like children with full faith in a good heavenly father who gives us good gifts. And part of those good gifts are good, the good fruit that he promises to bring about in our lives. And as you noted, there's a lot, of course, in all of that Matthew chapter seven, that's just just kingdom language over and over yep. again with these different metaphors. Sometimes I might say like mixed metaphors, but there's a lot in there that's like you've said, that's just subject to like our basic understanding of categories. So I do love that like, you get all these horticultural references. And when you get to this point where there's the conversation about the thorn bushes or the figs from yeah. thistles. You know, the funny thing is, it's basically saying like, there's a folly in expecting harmful weeds. And everybody knows what weeds are, like harmful weeds to produce beneficial fruit. You just know that doesn't happen. Right. Because like the essential elemental nature of the plant determines out from which it produces its own bearings. And so it just seems crazy, right? You're just not expecting that. And yeah, yeah it's so funny to your point that we end up with language that says like, well, so-and-so is a Christian that's uh, fallen away or so-and-so. I mean, we... You look at this passage and you say, like, well, you're just mixing categories. Right. And we know why we're doing that. Or in some ways we're doing that because it makes us feel better. Right. But yeah. I think like an appropriate place to maybe wrap this this up is to summarize everything we're saying with a couple of things that might be helpful in terms of, well, what in our estimation does this kind of look like? You know, if if we're trying again, this there is like a subjective nature to this that can get really dangerous really fast. But there again, this is for our benefit and our great good. The Apostle John in his first epistle says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. So there is in a sense here, a knowing that is comforting, that is for our great benefit, that gives us energy and purpose. So when we talk about this fruit, it is also for our benefit as well as it's one of those things quintessentially that is for our good and for the glory of God. So to me, first, there's always an obedience to the commandments of God. So by this, we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. So the hallmark for me is anybody that comes hard in antinomianism, not, not just like the, the commandments are optional, but the commandments are wrong. They're against, we're against those things. Yeah. We have no draw to them. We are not tethered to them. And not just that we actively fight against obedience to them because we somehow think that they are outmooted or outlandish or no longer necessary. That's not what the scripture teaches. So in some ways, I think a mark of that fruit is that we have a proclivity, a drawing to the obedience of God's commands, not to perform, not for meritorious favor, but because we know, again, therefore are good and for God's glory. I would say the second that comes alongside that for me is this idea of practicing righteousness. So again, from John's epistle, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of Jesus. So those who have a genuine faith will display a life of faith. It's a life that's molded or been shaped by obedience to faith. This is not perfection. It's just to say that there is a demonstration of a desire for godliness. And sometimes that's all it is, right? Like we're caught in habitual sin. We're in a rut of our own destruction. And yet there is this sense within us that says, Lord, would you help me to want to want to be pulled away from this nonsense? That itself, I think, often is a great sign that there's fruit in our lives. Um, Two more things. One is that I think there's like this radical breach from where we were before. We've talked about this, that in being made a new creation, there is internally in its essential nature, this break from what we were before. And the idea of it being radical, I think is somewhat subjective based on what your life was like before that point, or whether you've never known a time besides Jesus. I was just with a church group this past week. And one of the, uh, these lovely saints in the Lord, who's an, an elderly lady was saying, you know, her testimony is she was raised in the church. She was raised in a godly family as I was. And that's a great blessing and benefit. And this is perhaps the best articulation of what I've, I felt for that experience. And she said, I was just always in a place where I could keep getting the opportunity to say yes to Jesus. 
And I think that itself is radical, isn't it? To be yeah. able to say yes to Jesus, like we talked about, is yeah. a transformation of an epic miracle, which is that the heart of stone will be replaced with one of flesh. I can even say that. Here's the last thing I would say, and this is a hallmark for our interaction. It goes all the way back to our denials and our affirmations at the start of this whole conversation. And that is, I think that one of the great hallmarks of this internal evidence is that there's a walking in love. Yeah. You know, again, John says, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers, because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And so loving particularly our own brothers and sisters who share our head in Jesus Christ and God, the father, that's like dear to the apostle John's heart. And he's yeah. using that. He's drawing that forth as saying like, well, he doesn't use the explicit language of fruit of the spirit. It's all implied there. Little children love one another. And so I think like this idea of having a compulsion to be part of the family of God, knowing that it's something separate and special that brings the ecclesiology together. And that of course, like as we gather on the Lord's day, that these are like, even if you disagree with sometimes the people in your church family, knowing like, these are my people, these yeah. are my siblings, this is my family. And it's not just a natural bond, but a supernatural bond. All these things for me, I think to varying degrees in magnitude express in some way that kind of fundamental internal evidence that we ought to be looking for to test whether we see we're in the faith, but not in such a way that it pulls us into the, I don't know why you're clapping. I'm talking about you stance. I mean, yeah. what, what say you, as we kind of wrap this conversation up, what say you about those things? What would you add or take away from that stuff? Yeah. I mean, I don't think I would take anything away from that. I, I think good. You're, you're absolutely <laughs> right in that we cannot separate and divorce a life of holiness from the Christian life. I mean, when you boil down everything we've said in the last episode and in this episode, that's that's what it boils down to. The life, the Christian life is a life of holiness. It's a life striving after holiness. Um, I think it's, I don't remember which, one, one of the minor prophets, there's this, there's this um, section, it's the shortest minor prophets, Obadiah probably, um, where, where God basically asked the prophet, like, if if the priest touches corrupt food, does he make the food right. holy? And and the prophet says, no, of course not. And th there's a certain sense in which what's holy is holy in almost intrinsically. Now we we're holy intrinsically because we've been made holy intrinsically. God is holy intrinsically because that is necessarily who God is. But the holiness of the Christian is an intrinsic holiness right? Justification is from the outside in. Sanctification is from the inside out. And so sanctification starts at the core of our being where God has changed and transformed us. And it works its way out into the rest of our nature, the rest of our being, and then outward into good works. And you cannot separate that reality from the Christian life. The Christian life simply is a life pursuing and embracing and embodying and growing in holiness. That is what it means to be a Christian. It's not all that it means to be a Christian, but it is what it means to be a Christian. So when you separate those things from each other, you're causing this artificial divide. And you have to then ask the question like, well, if if you have a radical different understanding of what it means to be a Christian, and that that radical different understanding leads you to embrace a life totally devoid of fruit, then are right. you even a Christian? Do you even right. have the spirit of holiness? If there is no holiness in your spirit, um, it, it just, it's a nonsense category that I think for some reason, I mean, there's a lot of reasons I keep saying some reason. I think a lot of the reason is because we're just uncomfortable with, with acknowledging that some people aren't Christians. Like we're, we're uncomfortable with the acknowledgement that people we love and care about, care about whether they're our family members, whether they're coworkers and friends, whether they're people that we know from church or in the church, we're just uncomfortable with acknowledging that that may not actually be true. I think there's a certain sense in which we are unhealthily introspective about our own salvation, right? This is the, I'm, I'm talking, I'm, why are you clapping? I'm talking about you theory. Right. We have this understanding where like, if we don't do enough good works, it means Jesus doesn't love us anymore. Right. And that's, although what we're saying is if you're not doing good works, if you have no fruit, then you may not have the spirit. We're not saying that your good works somehow cause Jesus to love you or that his love is dependent on your good works. And that is a very complex, nuanced dis distinction there. So I think you're right. I think that's a good corrective and a good reminder for all of us that we can't 
we we just can't separate these two things from each other. It's it's absolutely destructive to separate them from each other. And this is where you get people who um you know who show no love for their fellow Christians and no love for believe for unbelievers. Right. They show right. no love for anybody really, yet they want to wear their favorite. Um, I'm not thinking of anyone specific, and it's going to sound like I am. I promise you, I really, really am not talking about Joe Thorne. I don't know why this is coming to mind, but the, the, <laughs> when, the, that will make sense when I when I finish the sentence. These are the people who will proudly tattoo the year of their confession all over their body, but then they're total jerks all the time, and they don't love anybody. That is not Joe Thorne, even though he does have his confession tattooed on him. Joe seems like a lovely guy, and I think I know he loves the Lord. I, I'm way down this rabbit hole of overqualifying, yes. <laughs> and now it just sounds like I'm trying to course correct. So I'm just going to stop. That's what I'm talking about. These people that have utterly divorced the the spirit and the fruit of the spirit: love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self control. They've utterly divorced those things from what it means to have the spirit, and that just may it never be right. That's that's Paul's answer. That doesn't make any sense. That's an incoherent category. So we just have to keep that straight. We have to make sure that we're living that life that reflects that understanding. And it's very easy to fall off off of the rails and and fall into a practical antinomianism or a practical legalism um, without meaning to. So we just have to be careful. We're going to say some words that we always say when we end our conversation. And the part of the reason why we say them is because they are quintessentially essential. I'm just going to double down on that in somewhat redundancy <laughs> that they express what it means to be a Christian. So when we say, you know, love everyone, that this is this idea. And, and then especially qualifying that by saying honor the brother, you know, this is the idea that that's what it means to be a Christian. And that again, your ability or my ability to enact that, to act in that way is the indicative and the imperative that always Paul puts together. It is because you have been changed because your spirit has been made holy. And we, we just forget, you know, like the same Isaiah six, the same, uh, you know, the sense in which the prophet comes and sees God high and lifted up and he is holy, holy, holy. If the spirit is God, but not the father, not the son at the same time, we're saying that that is the holy, holy, holy spirit, right? That by God's gift dwells within us. How can we think anything else but to say that he has done something significant in us that would be manifest yeah. in good works, changed works and things for our good and for his glory, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that's just about as uh, good a place to wrap it up. And hopefully I won't accidentally accuse anyone else of being terrible people. <laughs> Sorry, Joe, that wasn't intentional. Not Don't that add us, Joe, Joe listens Thorne. to this podcast. And he probably has no idea who I am. But um, anyway, now that I've derailed myself Derailing myself. Let's just do this. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Oh.